Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Christ Church. Welcome back to those of you who've been away. Welcome to opening uh, of the baseball season. Welcome uh, to the campuses that are joining us upstairs at the 01 in Highland Park and Crossroads. Uh, I remember in the creative team meeting when someone said, you know what we ought to do for the transition video? We ought to interview you, you about how long the series went on. I said, that is such a bad idea. But Somehow I got talked into it, and uh, it has been going on for five years, and we are at the penultimate sermon, the second-to-last message. We're in Luke chapter 23, which is covering the last hours of Christ's life through his death. And what I want to do um, today is cover that a little bit more devotionally. So you may be familiar with the terms Station of the Cross, or the Via Dolorosa, or the Via Crucis, or the Way of Sorrow. These terms refer, in a, in a very literal technical sense, to a path that you can walk in Jerusalem that is largely believed to be the path that Christ walked as he left the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes to various places on his way to Golgotha. Now, Jerusalem is an old city, and walls and streets and everything has changed over thousands of years. Uh, it's remarkable. If you've, if you've studied Israel or if you've, if you've been there, you might know that what, Jerusalem is like 4,000 years old. I mean, people have been living there for thousands of years. So one of the largest departments in the government of Israel is the Department of Antiquities. If you you know, apply for a permit, which you have to get to do anything, right? You want to you wanna put a shed up out back and you're going to pour a little concrete footing. So you're going to dig. The Department of Antiquities shows up to watch you dig. And they say, okay, whatever you find, <laughs> that's ours. And you're going to find stuff, right? Through just 4,000 years, right? I mean, it might be Middle Ages. It might be Roman Empire. It might be back to the time of King David, but you find stuff, it's been going for a long time. The roads, the streets, the signs, the houses, the walls have moved. But there is a sense that there is a specific designated path that Jesus walked down. And I've been there. I've walked the uh, Via Dolorosa. I've gone to the Stations of the Cross. The first time I was in Israel, I preached at a little church, a Palestinian church. And the pastor who had grown up there, living there, uh, had not been a Christ follower until he got into his 20s, but he had grown up there at Station 7. And, and he literally walked me through all the stations, and he was telling me about what Christ did, and he was telling me about when he was in high school and they were egging this house because this girl lived there. Right? I mean, it's, and then we get to Station 7, and he knocks on the door and steps in and says, Hey, Mom, I'm here with a friend from the States. So it's a place. It's a real, literal place. It's also, Stations of the Cross or Via Dolorosa is also a term that can be used to describe a devotional practice of, uh, of walking through the last hours of Christ's life and trying to put yourself into the story or to think about what was actually happening and to reflect on how you might have responded then or how you should respond now. So traditionally, there were 14 stations of the cross. 
And they were based, eight of them were based on scripture and um, six of them were based on more tradition. In 1991, uh, Pope John Paul II changed them. And there are now 14 stations and they're all tied specifically to uh, chapter and verse in one of the four gospels. And, uh, and what is generally the case, some churches have stained glass windows that have the stations of the cross in them. Uh, we will, at all three campuses, be putting up, uh, again, on April 7th, we'll put up images, paintings, some of it's commissioned work that we've had artists in the church have done, some of it has been commissioned, but each campus, and that rotates year to year, which, which of the, the stations of the cross artwork we put up at each campus um, and then we just encourage you on Good Friday, perhaps, to spend some time reflectively, quietly moving your way through the stations. So what I want to do today is uh, we have nine other images selected by Brad, who's, of course, uh, the pastor of worship and arts here, was an artist as well. And Brad uh, selected nine images, uh, paintings and wood carvings and, and sculptures and other things. And I want to start on station five because in previous weeks we covered stations one through four. So Garden of Gethsemane is station one. Uh, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss is station two. Uh, Jesus being cross-examined by the high priest uh, with the Sanhedrin where finally they can't get the witnesses to line up. I, I preached on this. They can't get the witnesses to line up. And so the high priest says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, oh yes, this conversation is going nowhere. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but I don't mean that term like you do right here. I'm not talking about a political military position. I'm actually claiming to be the son of man. I'm claiming to be God. I'm claiming to be the, the one who will rule and reign over everything everywhere. And the high priest says, are you, are you serious? You're claiming to be uh, you're claiming to be the son of God. And Jesus very famously then said, I am, right? Well, I am making that claim, but in, it's hard in the English for us to get that. But that is also then the, the Hebrew word for God, the covenant name of God, I am, right? The tetragrammaton, Yahweh. So he makes that big claim. That's station three. Station four is Peter's denial of Christ. So we begin with station five. And station five is a, is a painting um, by uh, Antonio Cesare, a, a 19th century Swiss artist. This is Pilate. It's called Echo Homo. It's Consider the Man. And Pilate, being the highest ranking Roman official in Jerusalem at the time, has to give permission for Christ to be crucified. And he is, um, he is, he is a little hesitant to do that. He questions Jesus, does not think Jesus is guilty of anything that would, that would merit his death. But uh, he does the politically expedient thing. Right? So he doesn't do the right thing. He does uh, what everybody else wants him to do. And so he goes to the crowd and he says, what would you have me do with this one uh, Jesus called the Messiah, and the crowd, of course, chants, crucify him. And, and Pilate will famously do that. And uh, it's just worth asking ourselves. I mean, this is part of the, the devotional stations of the cross kind of approach. In what ways am I like Pilate? Right? Am I going to, if Jesus is unpopular, or if something is unpopular... 
I'm going to go with the crowd as opposed to doing the right thing. In what ways am I like the crowd? I used to be with Jesus because I thought he was going to take me someplace fun and easy. Now that I see that maybe that's not where we're going, I'm, I'm going to say I'm moving on. Crucify. So station five, Jesus being judged by Pilate. Station six, uh, we turn a corner. This is a, a, a William Bouguereau uh, painting. He's also a 19th century artist. Uh, and, and we turn a corner with the sixth station because the first five have all reflected Jesus uh, suffering emotionally and spiritually. There's been betrayal. There's been abandonment. Now we get into the crown of thorns and the cat of nine tails. And Jesus is, is whipped. He is, he is going to physically suffer. And uh, this, of course, is, is horrible. And it's also, um, it's a bookend that we need to at least acknowledge. So at the beginning of Christ's life, at his birth, the angels are singing, right? There's a big celebration that, that the, king of, the king has been born. And wise men travel from far away and they come bearing gifts and they kneel down and they worship Jesus. Now at the end of his life, he is being dismissed as a king, but it's all in mockery. Right? It's all, they, they, they wrap him in a purple robe and they call him the king of the Jews and they put a crown on him. But it's all done sort of in spite and in malice. And uh, one of the devotional books that uh, I've been working through this, this Lent said, we need to realize that we cannot embrace the Jesus of majesty and reject the Jesus of mockery. They are one and the same. We cannot embrace the Jesus of majesty. We like to think about Jesus in power, coming. He's, he's big. He's the king. We cannot embrace the, the Jesus of majesty unless we embrace the Jesus of mockery. John, I think, does a great job of capturing this in the book of Revelation chapter 5. There's a scene there where they're saying, is there anybody qualified to open the scrolls? Obviously, very symbolic language. Is there no one qualified to open the scrolls, to break the seal, right? We need somebody, and there was no one found. And then someone says, behold, here is one who's qualified. And he pointed to the lion of the tribe of Judah, to the, to the root of, Je- of David and Jesse. And he said, we looked to the conqueror, and behold, we saw a lamb who had been slain. Right, so it's, it's, the, it's the majesty, and we see in majesty, we see this weakness, and we see one who has, who has been slain. Station 7 shows Jesus uh, carrying his cross. This is a clay relief contemporary work, uh, and, and it's, just, it's, it's interesting to, to pause and to realize how um, theatrical crucifixion was. So the Romans didn't like crucifixion because it was efficient. It wasn't efficient. It was slow. It was, but it was, it was great theater because uh, to die by crucifixion was very public. It was very painful. It was very slow. And they did it, of course, right in the intersections. Uh, they, did it, they did it where people would have to walk past these people who were hanging on a cross for days sometimes, dying. And it was just Rome saying, you know, you cross us, right? And this will be you. And, uh, and for a Jew, it's, there's this double whammy 
that not only are you being crucified, Jesus is not only carrying his cross through town, uh, heading to his death, but he's being taunted and jeered all along the way by his own people because uh, Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's a, it's a statement um, out of the Old Testament that the Jews at that time believed anybody who was being crucified is not just being condemned by Rome. They're God-forsaken. God is declaring a curse on them as well. And so uh, Jesus is not seen as the prophet of God. He's now being seen as God-forsaken. And of course, here we pause to recognize that we, Christ followers, are told to follow Jesus, to pick up our cross, and to follow after him. 1 Peter 2, 21. We are told that Jesus died on the cross for us and as an example that we should follow. So in what ways are we accepting the burdens of others and living our life? Station 8 is, uh, involves Simon the Cyrene. Um, so you see, the, the old, in this case, the older gentleman who's come alongside to help Jesus carry the cross. Now, a few things to note here. We, have, we don't know why Simon was selected. There's speculation, because he's from Cyrene, that's modern-day Libya, that he would have been dark-skinned, and perhaps there's a racial um, undertone here when he gets, he gets grabbed out of the crowd. The Romans are not acting out of compassion. Jesus has been whipped. He's too weak to carry the cross himself. They're not in any mood to sort of uh, allow this to go slowly. So they, uh, they, grab, uh, they grab somebody out of the crowd, and they grab this man, Simon. And Simon is left to help Jesus. Now, it begs the question, where are the disciples? <laughs> where are Jesus' friends? Where is anybody who, who recognizes uh, that this guy is being treated unfairly who's going to come alongside and help him, right? They're, they're not there. So Simon is commissioned. What's interesting is when you look at the end of Mark's gospel and then you look at the end of the book of Romans— we can see that Simon's sons become leaders in the church in Rome. Which leads, and this is speculation, which leads to the thought that this little interaction that Simon has with Jesus changes Simon's life. He sees in this guy who's been beaten, got a crown of thorns shoved on his head, is being jeered at and taunted, and is going to his death. He sees something in this guy where he says, you know what? (laughs) I'm, I'm with him. Like the last guy you would think you're going to say, I'm with him. He says, I'm with him. And we pause to acknowledge and to think through this idea that every time I serve, right, I not only help someone, but I change. Right? When we serve, when we put ourselves out for others, especially if we, if we take on some of their suffering, they not only profit, but we profit as well. We are changed. Station 9 uh, involves Jesus uh, coming onto the women of Jerusalem who are weeping for him. This is a print of a wood carving uh, that was made. And 
Jesus finally now comes across to some people who get the injustice of what's going on. And they're with him, and they're, they're weeping for him, and they say what's going on here is wrong. Jesus, interestingly, does not accept their sympathy. He does not move in that direction. Always the prophet, Jesus says to them, uh, I'm okay, weep for yourself. And we often think of prophets as being those who are angry because you know, there's, there's these condemnations that come, and so the prophets are these old, angry guys that are yelling at people. If you look, there is some of that that happens, but the prophets spend a lot of time crying, and they're crying because they see ahead. If you continue down this path, this is where this is headed. And that this is the fourth time in Luke's gospel that Jesus basically sort of foreshadows that, Jer- that Israel is going to fall. Jerusalem is going to be overrun, and it was bad. It was horrific, right? It happens in 70 AD, and it's horrific, horrific, horrific. And so Jesus uh, sort of says to these women, uh, don't, don't cry for me. Uh, you know, cry for what's coming and there's, there's some just sort of some prophetic, you know, not just what's coming to Jerusalem, but what's coming in judgment on those that, that, that don't embrace the love and grace and offer of God. Jesus would say to Jerusalem, uh, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to care for you and to protect you and to shield you from what's going on. I wanted to gather you like a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. And so there's this moment that he has with these women. The tenth station um, is Jesus being crucified, and this is a, a marble uh, statue of this. And we, interestingly, we don't get details here. Uh, there's nothing about the blood or the flies or the agony or any of that. Perhaps it's because when the Gospels were written, Rome is still in power, crucifixions were happening, everybody knew, everybody knew what a crucifixion looked like. So there was no need to describe it. Um, It could also be that the writers of the Gospels wanted to uh, draw our attention to other things. And one of the things that we, we really should see as we walk through the Stations of the Cross is the ironies of some of the things that go on. So the, the whole Bible is full of ironies. Uh, and, and, I mean, you've got these moments where God says to a, an old couple that is barren, your descendants are going to be the ones through which everything is going to happen, right? I mean, numerous times it's you who, who are a virgin are going to give birth. I mean, there's just, so we, we've got an irony here at the crucifixion and that Jesus is declared the king of the Jews. They put a sign uh, over his head that he's the king of the Jews. And he is the king of the Jews, right? I mean, so they're doing it to jest and it's real. There's a number of ironies. The biggest irony, and, and it's easy for us to overlook this because we just grow acclimated to it. The biggest irony is, an, is what makes Christianity a non-starter for so many people. It's the idea that God becomes a person and then suffers and dies. Because that's just not, not what gods do, right? It's not what anybody wants. 
I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Billionaire and the Mechanic. It's about America. It's about Larry Ellison and America's Cup. And he's spending, you know, he's got $55 billion and he's spending $100 million each campaign on sailboats. And, and uh, it's all about the perks and privileges of having $55 billion. And, and that's what people want. The idea that God, who has everything, would give it all up and come down to live among us and then further descend to be mocked and humiliated and spit on and crucified. I mean, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. We preach God dying. <laughs> it's foolishness to people. They go, what are you talking about? Gods don't die. right? Not in, not in the Greek mind, not in the Roman mind. And, and yet this, is, this lies at the heart of what we claim, that God shows up and dies in our place. So great irony and tragedy in the crucifixion. Station 11 uh, involves the, the thieves. So this is the same artist. The, this is a clay relief here. And so there's a good thief and the bad thief. Right? All four Gospels will talk about the fact that there were two other men crucified with Jesus. And... Um, they, again, they get referred to as good thief and bad thief. That's probably not very helpful. Who's a good thief? Uh, makes you think of Jean Valjean. He steals a loaf of bread to, you know, help his nephew. Uh, um, the term that Matthew and Mark use to describe these men is that they were zealots. So they were trying to overthrow Rome. So think of them as uh, terrorists, guerrillas, uh, freedom fighters, if you like them, right? I mean, but they're, they are trying to overthrow the government. And one of them is very hardened and callous, and he mocks Jesus. He goes, oh, so you're the Savior. <laughs> okay, well, hey, here's an idea. Save yourself and us while you're at it. And the other one says, uh, what, do, wh where are you going with this? Like, we're suffering. We knew what we were getting in for. We did something to deserve this. This man is innocent. And then he says to Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which, uh, I mean, okay, so just imagine, obviously this guy has, has, has got some insight to the fact that Christ's kingdom is going to come at the other side of his death. Because he's saying to this guy, hey, right, when you come into your kingdom, you're dying now. You are, you've been beaten and whipped and, you know, you're within hours of, of dying by this slow, cruel method. Uh, when you're in power, right, please remember me. So he obviously is looking past his death. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And uh, thousands, millions of sermons have been preached asking this question, but it is the question. Which thief am I like? <laughs> right? right? I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a thief in one sense. I'm guilty of whatever, all kinds of things. Am I, am I a thief that has a heart that is soft to God, that owns my guilt and looks to him? Or am I one that is staying calloused? And it certainly would remind us. It's never too late. Right? I mean, this, this guy, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because this guy can't do any good. He can't give any money. He can't get, get baptized. He can't, he, can't, he can't do anything. He's going to die. He's nailed to a tree. But Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The, the gospel is all about what God does for us. It's not about us earning something. But it also reminds us that not everybody embraces that offer. 
The twelfth station is um, Jesus speaking to Mary and the disciple. Um, and, and what we have here, so the disciple is John. Uh, in John's gospel, John always refers to himself as uh, the disciple. And Mary, is, um, his mother, is, is going to need to be cared for. In that culture, there's no Social Security, there's no Medicaid, Medicare, right? So there, it's, it is always the oldest male child that is expected to care for the parents. Jesus is dying, and so although there, there are, Mary has other children, it would certainly be the Protestant understanding of the way the text reads, Mary has other children, Jesus, or, yeah, Jesus asks John to step into that role. And, and there's all kinds of things going on here. There's a sense that the gospel, the cross doesn't just reconcile us to God, it reconciles us to each other. There's a sense that the bonds that come out of the family of God are greater than biological bonds. Uh, so we have that station. And then the last one I'll mention for now is that Jesus dies. Uh, and this is Diego Vasquez, uh, 17th century Spanish artist. And Jesus dies on the cross in his last words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think these are pretty significantly misunderstood. Um, Several things are happening when Jesus cites this. First of all, he is making a claim to be God. It's a messianic psalm as he sort of articulates that. He is stepping into this claiming in yet another way to be God. Secondly, he is giving an existential cry of anguish and pain and angst. Uh, He is suffering. How long is this going to go on? But thirdly, he's also, in essence, drawing people's attention to Psalm 22. So the Psalms were not numbered uh, at this time. So he didn't say, Psalm 22, I'm thinking about Psalm 22, you, you would say the first line. People had these memorized. So he cites Psalm 22. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He draws everybody's attention to Psalm 22, and they think, oh, yes, this desperate cry of anguish and suffering. And then as you read through the psalm, it changes, and people realize, no, God is there for me. Well, I want to, um, I want to wrap up briefly and, and prepare us for communion by telling a story. I've shared this story before, but it, it, more than any other story, it captures a little bit of the essence of the Stations of the Cross in which truth gets smuggled under the radar and we suddenly see something uh, that, we, that we had seen but not understood before. So five, six years ago, um, we, a friend and I had sailed across Lake Michigan. We had our youngest boys with us. And uh, we, we got stuck over there because the weather turned, uh, and it was just massive waves. Biggest waves I'd ever seen in Lake Michigan. We were at South Haven. There was no way we could get out of the harbor, let alone, you know, get over these waves and get out there to sail. And so we ended up spending a day longer than we had intended. And at some point that afternoon, we, we go to the beach because there's these eight-foot waves, and we're body surfing, and we're doing what... Lots of Chicago was doing in the Cayman Islands and Naples this past week. We were doing it in Lake Michigan. And uh, after a little while, I, got, I started to get nervous because things were getting so rough. And so I said to my friend, 
you know, we, I think this is getting a little, a little out of control. We need to give our boys, you know, the heads up that they got five more minutes and then we're done. He says, I agree. So we give them the, the five minute, uh, okay, in five minutes we're done. Five minutes goes by and we're trying to get our boys in. My boy was not coming in. So we're standing in about uh, knee-deep water where he's saying, Dad, what are, you, what are you doing? I have never had this much fun in my life. And, and it's great. And I said, you know, it's just it's getting out of control. And I said, if you got in trouble out here, I could not help you. And I think it's a little, it's a little dangerous. And he says, I am not going to get in trouble. And if you got in trouble, I could help you. It's all good. Let's keep going. So we're having this discussion, which some of you have been in with your children. And uh, at that point, my friend says, hey, that family's in trouble. And we looked up and we saw a family that was, that was sort of being taken out with a riptide out along the pier. So we run down the beach and we run out onto the pier. We get down, down this long pier, maybe a quarter of a mile. It's a big pier that goes out. We get down to the end of the pier. Uh, people there had already pulled out all the kids and they'd pulled out one adult male who was not in good shape but looked like he was going to make it. There is another adult male that is face down in the water. And maybe 10 people had jumped in off the dock and are trying to help this, this, this guy. We, my friend in particular, sort of steps in to coordinate the rescue effort. And it goes on for about 10, 15 minutes where I stood up and I said, uh, I'm going in. And he says, no, 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 no. And I said, this isn't working. And he says, Mike, that guy's, already, that guy's already drowned. He's been face down in the water for at least 10 minutes, maybe 15. He says, we got 10 guys in trouble. They just don't know it. And he said, if you go in, I now have 11 people in trouble. So we've got to get these other people out. And in fact, it, it was, it was uh, everything we could do to get these other 10 people out. Well, at, right as we got the last person out, the paramedics and fire and police all show up. And, of course, it's a hysterical scene because there's a family that realizes that their dad is, is face down in the water and that he's died. And so we get told that we should leave. We start walking down the pier. And, of course, I meet up with my son who, is, um, who had wanted to keep swimming. And I was saying it's too dangerous. And so we go sit down and, and end up uh, for... A, an hour talking about what just happened and what could we have done and how could we have done this differently and what should we have done. And then uh, the next day, we sailed back across, 14 hours to sail across. We spent a good part of that talking about what if we'd done this? What if we'd done this? I was grieved that I had not jumped in. And my friend continued to insist, if you jumped in, probably not only would you have died, but some of these other people would have died as well because we couldn't have gotten them out. But it just felt like something that somebody should have done. It felt like something I should have done. Well, fast forward about three months. I'm bothered by this on an ongoing basis, right? That, that this guy drowned on our watch. We couldn't help him. I've shared a prayer that I pray many mornings. I learned it from somebody um, 10 years ago. And it's, it, it basically, I said, good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Spirit of God. Uh, Heavenly Father, I praise you. You are the creator of everything everywhere. Lord Jesus, I praise you. You're the savior of the world. Spirit of God, I praise you. You're the sanctifier of God's people. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that today I can live in your presence and bring you joy, Lord. Jesus, I pray that today I will successfully pick up my cross and follow after you. Spirit of God, I pray that today I can yield my life to you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of you would be manifest in my life. Holy, precious, triune God, have mercy on my soul. So, I, I, I don't say it out loud, but on many mornings, that's sort of the way I start the day as I'm walking towards the coffee pot. On this particular morning, as I'm walking down the steps, I said it a little bit differently. And so, as opposed to saying, Lord Jesus, you're the Savior of the world, they said, Lord Jesus, you saved me. And when I thought it that way, the, the next thought I had was, you would have jumped in. You would have jumped. I didn't jump. You would have jumped in after me. And I, I stopped on the steps and I thought, okay, wonder if you've been over this over and over and over. If you jumped in, you would have, probably would have drowned. It wasn't a good plan. Da, 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 da. And I thought, he still would have jumped. Right? He knew. He knew he was going to die and he jumped. So I'm sort of reflecting on that. I literally, I sat down on the steps and I'm just thinking, okay, yeah, he would have jumped. He jumped. And then for the first time in three months, however many hours of rehearsing what we might have done later, for the first time, it hit me. I could have sent my son in to save this guy. I did He's, he's a lifeguard. He taught lifeguard. He's captain of the water polo team, right? I mean, he's the swimmer, not me. But the idea of a father sending their son is so, like, no. It, it didn't even occur to me. For months, it didn't even occur to me. And yet, that is what God did. He sent his son for you. That's what happened. And it's, if you're a parent, it's, it's <laughs> again, I didn't think of it for three months. It, it was the logical thing to do. It never occurred to me because what kind of father would send a son to their death? And yet, that's what God the Father does for us. And that's what we celebrate. And we need to lean into that truth and let it change us today. So there is a 14th station, and it is uh, the burial of Christ. Some Christian traditions celebrate and focus on the crucifixion of Jesus. Others focus their attention on the resurrection. Very few focus on what happens in between, which is the burial of Christ. But it's, it's attested to in all four Gospels and in the creeds. Christ is dead and buried. And, and this is, this is sort of a non-starter for many who just want to get to the resurrection and they don't think about how crazy it is that we are saying, Son of God dies and is buried. All right. So the Muslims who believe Jesus is a prophet but not God have him being, being, uh, ascending to heaven off of the cross without ever dying. Buddhists would say death and pain and suffering, there's, there's, it's, it's illusory. You've got to look, be able to look past it. You don't have to live in it. And Christianity says, no, there's real, evil is real and pain is real and death is real and God shows up and he dies. Now, uh, there's obviously more to the story, but this is a Lenten practice, right? So we don't go quickly to the resurrection. We don't race to the good news. 
So in the, in the weeks between now and Easter, we are painting ourselves into the picture, right? Where would I have been? What would I have done? How am I culpable in so much of what happened? And then we will celebrate the fact that although we are guilty, right, God loved us so much that he sent his son. And his son completed the work. He dies. He's buried. But you can't keep him down. And he rises again on the third day. If you would like to pray with somebody, there'll be people up front who would welcome a chance to do that this morning. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace and the mercy of his risen Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, and the power and fellowship of the Spirit of God be and abide with each and every one of you, now and always. Amen.